If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to welcome those of you not just in this room, but in Loudoun, PW, and MoCo, and others of you watching online from different places. Uh, as you're turning, I want to remind all of us about Secret Church coming up this Friday night. So if you've never been a part of Secret Church or don't even know what it is, and me talking about it makes you think it's not much of a secret, uh, it's a simulcast that is indeed not a secret. It has about 50,000 people around the world who will be a part from every state in the U.S., from countries like Peru, Zambia, Cambodia, Indonesia, many others this year. So the whole idea is based on Christians around the world who have to meet in secret at the risk of their lives. And when they do, as I've learned from my experiences in those underground settings, they make the most of that time. So Secret Church is a six-hour intensive study in God's Word with concentrated prayer for the persecuted church. Just a really unique time that I would encourage you to be a part of this Friday night. If you want to join in person, you can do that at our Tyson's. PW or Loudon locations starts at seven o'clock. Just go to McLeanBible.org slash secret church to register for free. Or you can be part of it from your home on your own or with your family or with your group. Uh, and you just go to secretchurch.org to find out information about how to do that. And personally, pastorally, I want to encourage you in particular to be a part of this secret church because of the topic that we're covering that I'm convinced is essential for every single Christian and specifically for every single member of NBC. And we're going to be talking about the Great Commission and the Great Imbalance and how we are unknowingly working against what Jesus has called us to in the Great Commission. And we're missing the purpose of God for our lives and our families and for the church as a whole. And I just, I can't overstate how important what we're diving into Friday night is. So to the extent in which you are able, I would encourage you, as many of you as possible, to be a part of it. So with that said, even talking about Secret Church is a good lead-in to our time together today because if you've ever been to Secret Church, you know that we cover a lot of biblical ground in a relatively small amount of time. It's like open mouth, insert fire hose with biblical content. And I would say that our time today in God's Word is going to be a bit like that. As we start a new journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 in a series we're calling All in Good Conscience. So before we uh, got to Easter, we finished a series through 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 on sexuality and singleness and marriage. And now we're moving into the next part of 1 Corinthians where we see the word conscience referred to eight different times, which is almost half the times this word is used in the entire Bible, which means these three chapters in 1 Corinthians are critical to understanding what God says about our conscience. Now, this is a word and a concept. I'm not sure we totally understand what it is, why it's important. So what I want to do today is I want to show you what the Bible as a whole teaches about the conscience. We're going to be all over the place looking at different passages in God's Word. I'll put them up here on the screen. You might write them down as we go. And then what we'll do starting next week is walk verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10 in a way that I hope helps all of us, whether you've been a Christian for decades, or you're exploring Christianity, or anywhere in between, adults, teenagers, kids, to help us all see what our conscience is and why our conscience matters. And I actually want to start with the second part, why our conscience matters, because I'm guessing some of you might be thinking right now, wow, a series on conscience. This is amazing. If you like weird-sounding words, like con-science, like what does that even mean? Like are we in Disney World with Pinocchio here? Like this is awesome. I'm so glad I'm here today. Can't wait to come back next week. I get a potential lack of excitement here but I want to submit to you that you actually should be really excited about this series because, as I'm going to put up here on the screen and we walk through all these verses, a good, clean conscience is critical to your life. Let me start there in at least five ways. So a good, clean conscience is critical 
in your life to one, intimacy with God. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see that? If you wanna draw near to God, then you need a clean conscience. Obviously, you won't experience intimacy with God, closeness to God, if your conscience is ignoring God, but you also won't experience intimacy with God if your conscience is constantly plagued with guilt before God. I believe many Christians listening to me right now, even really mature Christians, lack intimacy, closeness with God because you often feel a low-level sense of guilt before God. Some of you from things that happened a long time ago in your life. Others of you from a constant feeling that you aren't measuring up to all that God wants you to be. He's never satisfied with you. And as a result, you are missing out on the intimacy, closeness, the nearness that God has designed for your life. So keep going here. A biblical understanding of conscience is critical to success in life, which I would define here as peace and joy and happiness and full, abundant life, the kind of life that only comes from intimacy with God. So I'm not talking about success in terms of achieving a certain position or making a certain amount of money. All kinds of people achieve position and make money in ways that you wonder if they have any conscience at all. And in the end, their position and their possessions don't lead to the lasting peace and joy and happiness and full life they were hoping for because achievement and money can't produce those things. But a good, clean conscience before God can. To be able to say what Paul said in Acts chapter 23, verse one, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's saying that from prison. Hardly a picture of prosperity in this world, but he has a peace, a joy, a contentment, happiness, a fullness of life that nothing in this world can take away from him. Don't you want that? A good, clean conscience before God is critical to that. A good conscience is also critical to unity in the church. We're gonna see this in 1 Corinthians 8 more next week when we look at how different Christians at Corinth had differences of conscience. And they needed to learn how to love one another amidst those differences. I look around Right now in this room and other locations and all the different places where we're gathered online, and I know all of our consciences are calibrated differently. We have different views on eating and exercise, on medicine and, dare I mention, vaccines. We have different philosophies on dating or courtship or parenting or discipline of children. I was in a conversation this last week with a group leader talking about how the different parenting philosophies in their group are causing some real problems when they get together. Because some parents are thinking, why do those parents not rein in their wild kids? And the other parents are thinking, why don't those parents let their kids do anything fun? They have different approaches to parenting so many different issues, to alcohol, cigars, debt, schooling of children, public or private or homeschool, whether to go to this party or that party or not, certain fashion trends, entertainment, politics, all of these things related to our conscience. And the reality is we live in a part of the world where we have options when it comes to church, which means we can find a church where we don't have to deal with uncomfortable differences of conscience with other Christians. As soon as we face disagreements on matters of conscience, we can just find another church where people look or think more like us. But the Christians in Corinth didn't have that option. And it was a mess. It was hard. You go back to chapter one, there was a lot of disunity in this church. But God in his word is calling them together to a kingdom and to a cause that's much bigger than their individual preferences or convictions on matters of conscience. God was calling them to a unity around something much deeper and much more wonderful. The gospel and God's word and the great commission. Which leads to the next thing here. A good, clean conscience is critical to mission in the world. So we'll talk about this more when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But Paul, who's writing 1 Corinthians, tells us he's willing to completely recalibrate his conscience to the extent God's word allows it and totally relinquish his rights in order to reach more people with the gospel. J.D. Crowley wrote an 
excellent book with Andy Nacelli on the conscience that I would highly recommend. You'll actually see a lot of the truths that we're walking through in God's word today in that book. And J.D. was a missionary in Cambodia. And he talks about planting a mango tree in his yard. And it wasn't going very well. It only produced about three mangoes in the first year it was supposed to bear fruit. But he didn't even get to eat those three mangoes because a Cambodian man who was working near him passed through his yard one day and took and ate his mangoes. J.D. immediately thought, the man has no conscience, no sense of right and wrong, stealing mangoes from my yard, until he realized what's true in most parts of the world, that it's not theft when passing through somebody's property field to pick a handful of fruit, just so long as you don't do any serious harvesting, it's normal. It's a right picture of people's willingness to share food with each other. What was actually wrong in this scenario was J.D.'s stinginess and not wanting to share any of his mangoes. And that was just one example of him needing to recalibrate his conscience and to live and love others accordingly. Just think if he had gone into Cambodia and started preaching, you sinners, stealing each other's mangoes and fruit, you need to repent. When in reality, he was the one who needed to humble himself, recalibrate his conscience to be more willing to share. It's a small example, but it represents a big issue. If we're going to reach the nations with the gospel, we have to be able to distinguish between the truths of God's word and matters of conscience and learn how to love and live with others accordingly. I'm concerned that if we can't even love other Christians in the church amidst differences of conscience, how will we ever love and lay down our lives for people in the world without Christ? More to come in 1 Corinthians 9 along those lines. Ultimately, a good, clean conscience is critical to living and dying for what matters most in this world. Now, that's a big statement, and I want to draw on church history to back it up. 500 years ago today, April 18th, 1521, Martin Luther was brought before the deed of forms where leaders from the Roman Catholic Church demanded that he recant his teachings from the Bible that salvation from sin is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, not through our works. That was different from what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching and still teaches today. And they were threatening to arrest and imprison, potentially even execute him. And 500 years ago today, Martin Luther stood in front of those leaders at the risk of his life and said these words, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. It's quite a statement, isn't it? It shows the importance of conscience. A good, clean conscience is worth living and dying for. Now, the Reformation may seem distant to us. Let me ask you a couple questions that seem closer to us. What if our government one day declares that affirming what God's word says about marriage and sexuality, which we talked about in the last series, is hate speech, and that offenders will go to prison. Will you, will we still declare God's word? What if you are required in your line of work to go against your conscience and the teachings of God's word, or else lose your job? What will you choose? Your job? or a good, clean conscience. Teenagers, what if your friends or teachers ask you what you believe about Jesus and the Bible on an issue that's very unpopular even? Would you share the gospel? Stand on the truths of the Bible? Even if it means losing your reputation? This is why I would say that knowing what God's word teaches about the conscience is extremely valuable for our lives. Because our consciences affect small and big decisions that we make every day in our lives. And for many Christians around the world, decisions that could lead to death. It would be a shame, though, wouldn't it, to lose your job or your reputation or go to prison or die because you were acting out of a misguided or misinformed conscience? Put all this together, I'd say this series is going to be really valuable. Intimacy with God success in life, unity in the church, mission in the world, and living and dying for what matters most. Now, here's the deal. We've been using this word conscience, but we've not explicitly defined 
what that word means. So let me put a definition of conscience up here on the screen, and then I'll show you where it comes from in God's word. Conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. Conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. Now, in order to unpack that, let's read through the eight times that we see conscience in 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. And I would encourage you to circle every time you see the word conscience. And we'll start to put all this together. Follow along with me, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now we're going to talk more about the context, what's going on with eating meat, food, idols, all that's going on in this passage. But let's just, again, keep listening to how the Bible talks about conscience. Flip over two chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. So now in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, almost like bookend. So this is how this series of three chapters starts in verse 8. Now chapter 10, verse 23, the Bible says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's an interesting phrase, the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without any, raising any question on the ground, there it is again, of conscience. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So eight different times, you should have conscience circled now. So what does God mean when he uses that term? What do we learn about conscience from God's word? Well, follow along. One, your conscience is personal. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, talked about their conscience and his conscience. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, Paul says, I don't mean your conscience, but his. So conscience varies from person to person. No one person's conscience is exactly the same as another person's conscience. I think of an email that a couple in our church sent me recently describing their differences of conscience on a divisive issue and how they were learning to understand each other better than they ever have. Even in a relationship as close as marriage, your consciences are still not identical to someone else's. I see husbands and wives nodding their heads right now. Don't nod too much, but we know this. We know that no one's conscience is exactly the same as someone else, which then causes you to start to realize that your conscience is not just personal, your conscience is imperfect. Like, no one has it all right, all the time, except for one. There's only one person whose conscience has been perfectly calibrated to God's definition of right and wrong. His name is Jesus, and you are not him. Your conscience, your sense of right and wrong, does not perfectly match God's will, which means that we all have room for growth and maturity in our conscience which leads to the reality that your conscience can change. Your sense of what is right and wrong can get better or it can get worse. To use language from 1 Corinthians, it can get stronger or weaker. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So using this language, we aim for what? For a good conscience. And we're aiming for that, a conscience that aligns more and more and more with God's will. 
Which leads to the next point. Your conscience needs calibration. Because we are all sinners. We're all prone to think and to act according to our ways instead of God's ways. Which means we need to continually calibrate our conscience. Our understanding of right and wrong around God's definition of right and wrong. When you hear calibration, think like a clock. If you're setting a clock, you want to calibrate it to what the actual time is, right? So you're not thinking it's one time when it's actually a totally different time. So we all need to calibrate our conscience in a few different ways. First and foremost, in alignment with God's word. In his word, God defines what is right and wrong, good and evil, helpful and hurtful for our lives or for others' lives which means that the more we learn God's word, the more our consciences can be calibrated in alignment with it, and the better our consciences can become. You may have a clear conscience about lying or gossiping or looking at pornography, but your conscience is not good at that point because it's out of alignment with God's word. You need to recalibrate your conscience around the reality that all of these things are sins against God. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. Many of you know there were significant parts of his conscience, most notably his anti-Semitism, that were completely out of line with God's word and extremely destructive, which is why we all need to start right here in alignment with God's word. And then second, to calibrate our conscience in tune with God's spirit, knowing there are many thoughts we have or decisions we make where we don't have a direct word from God in the Bible. Think of all the issues I mentioned earlier thoughts we have, decisions we make about important things like eating and exercise and medicine and vaccines and dating and marriage and parenting philosophies and children's schooling and teenage activities and entertainment choices and politics, all of these issues where we have principles from God's word to guide us, but we don't have exact words from God about how to think or what to do, which is why we have differences of conscience, which can be frustrating because we all want to follow God. But this is the good news. God's not left us alone. In this effort aimed to follow him with a good, clean conscience, God has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us, direct us, to give us wisdom and discernment, to calibrate our sense of right and wrong, to give us the sense of this is good or this is not good. This is wise. This is unwise. And we're also not alone in the sense that our conscience can be calibrated in humble learning from and selfless love for other people. I think of people in my life who have helped me see things I didn't see and learn things I didn't know about what was good or not good, wise or unwise. And we all need this from others. It's part of what I love about being in a church family where not everybody looks and thinks exactly like me. As we'll see more next week, we need to calibrate our conscience in selfless love for other people. More on that then. In all of this, think of your conscience like a guide. And again, we are not talking about Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket here. We're talking about a God-given guide to all the things we talked about earlier, to intimacy with God, Success in life, unity in the church, mission in the world, and living and dying for what matters most. Ultimately, living and dying for what brings God the most glory. As we'll see right after all this talk of conscience in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We want consciences that are leading us to live for the glory of God. Likewise, Hebrews 13, 18 says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Listen to that phrase. Your conscience is like a guide to acting honorably in everything. Think about it this way. Looking forward, your conscience warns you before you do wrong and urges you to do right. Your conscience is, by God's grace, this sense, hopefully driven by God's word and God's spirit, that says, this would be good to think or desire or do. Or this would not be good to think, desire, or do. And then looking backward, your conscience convicts you when you've done wrong and commends you when you've done right. Aren't we starting to see what a 
good gift our conscience is. Like, where would we be without this moral compass that God has given to us by his grace? If I'm about to think, desire, do something that is not good for me, not good for others, I want a reliable conscience that says, stop. Or if I think, desire, or do something that's not good for me or good for others, then I want a reliable conscience that says, you should not have done that. Every one of us needs a conscience that is a good guide. And every one of us needs to realize that our conscience needs a guard. Realize your conscience needs a guard against two things in particular. And this comes straight from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll put it up here on the screen, then we'll come back to this. Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So based on this passage, we realize we need to guard our consciences against two things, against one, insensitivity, that language in First Timothy chapter 4 of a seared conscience refers to people who have so ignored their God-given sense of right and wrong, they no longer pay any attention to it. It's like they've lost their moral compass, which is extremely dangerous. We never want to be insensitive to our conscience, so we guard against insensitivity. At the same time, we guard our consciences against oversensitivity. So the very next verse, verse three, talks about people in the church who were creating rules for the church that God had not given, like forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. And that wasn't good either, for people to impose their conscience on others when God had not spoken on that particular issue. Now you or I may believe very strongly about school choice or politics or a host of other issues, but we must be very careful not to impose those matters of conscience on another Christian brother or sister unless God has spoken clearly on those things. You put all this together, I hope we're seeing the importance in our lives and in the church of a biblical picture of conscience. Just to review, your conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong that guides what you live and die for. It's personal to you, it's imperfect, and needs to grow in maturity by being more and more calibrated around God's word, God's spirit, through learning from and loving others. Now, let's bring all of that then to a head. That's a lot of information. Let's bring it together, and I wanna show you how Jesus uniquely relates to our conscience. And this is the part I've been looking forward to most today. Two final truths. Number one, Jesus is your only hope for a clean conscience. He's your only hope for a clean conscience. This is the gospel, and it is the greatest news in all the world. And I want to invite you, particularly if you're exploring Christianity, to listen very closely here. Every one of us has been created by God with a sense of right and wrong written on our hearts. Good and evil are not arbitrary or accidental. Morality is by divine design. And every single one of us has turned aside from God to ourselves, from what God says is right and wrong to what we think is right and wrong, to God say, what, God said, from what God says is good and evil to what we think is good and evil. And the way we think and act, and the Bible calls this turning from God, sin. And our sin separates us from God. And the result of our sin in this world is death, eventual physical death for all of us. And then eternal spiritual death, experiencing separation from God forever and ever. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us and God has not left us alone in this separation from him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus and Jesus has done what no one else could ever do. Jesus lived a life with no sin, completely perfect. 
unlike any of us. And then, even though he had no sin to pay a price for, to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would trust in him. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, which means, so now follow this. This is the greatest news in all the world. For those of you who have never trusted in Jesus, I have good news for you today. All of your guilt can be gone through faith in Jesus. If you will only trust in Jesus. I I know of no other religion in the world that makes this astounding claim, and it is true. When you turn from your sin and yourself and you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, God himself forgives you of all of your sin. He wipes the whole slate clean. No matter what you have done, and God knows everything you have done, he wipes it all away the moment you place your faith in Jesus. All of your guilt is gone just like that by God's grace. And not just that, so as if that weren't enough, all of your guilt can be gone and all of God can be yours. You can be fully restored to relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Fully restored to full, abundant life with God that will never, ever, ever end. That even when you die, you will live forever with him. All of God. I'm talking about God. All of God can be yours. To enjoy forever and ever and ever. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I urge you, let today be the day. This moment be the moment. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And today, like right now, through faith in him, he will wipe the slate of sin clean from your heart. And he will restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. That is the best news in all the world. And God has brought some of you here today in this room, other locations, wherever you are in line, brought you to hear this right now, that you might believe this and receive forgiveness and eternal life with God today. And then, and then, so keep going for those who have trusted in Jesus. Please listen closely here. I mentioned earlier, there are many of you who as Christians are constantly plagued by guilt. Maybe you're haunted by sin from your past. You're constantly maybe weighed down with sin that remains in the present. A besetting sin that you still struggle with. And in their book on conscience, Crowley and Nacelli use a picture that I thought was so helpful. It looks something like this. They describe how as we grow in the Christian life, we learn more and more and more knowledge from God's word. So just picture this line as knowledge of God's word. And we're growing to understand more and more and more what God desires for our lives, what God calls us to, to experience life. The problem is, at the same time, our obedience to God's word often just doesn't keep up at the same pace, particularly if we're in God's word every day, learning God's word. We're constantly saying we have so much room to grow. We just don't feel like we can ever catch up. And we still, like I said, struggle, different ones of us with different besetting sins that we have a particularly hard time with, which means there's this gap between what we know and how we want to live. And they use this picture to make the point that if we're not careful, this gap can be so burdensome, so heavy, so discouraging. We think, I just, I can't keep up. I'll never get it. I'm never doing enough. I start to think, God is never pleased with me. I think this picture describes so many of our lives. It's at this point that they draw a cross right here. 
to paint a clear picture of a reminder that we all need every single day that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for him. That God's pleasure in us is based on Jesus' performance for us. He has died on the cross to cover over all of our sin. And his grace and mercy are sufficient to cover this gap in all of our lives, which we all need. In this 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive and cleanse us. So, so what do you do when your conscience and your inability to live up to God's word constantly weighs you down? Well, number one, 1 John 1, 9 says you confess your sin continually. Like the whole point surrounding that verse in 1 John. And we, we've studied this as a church family. We've memorized 1 John chapter 1. So what we don't need to do is deny our sin, to pretend it isn't there, or defend it, rationalize it. The Bible says don't deny it and don't defend it. Instead, be honest with God about your sin. Like confess your sin continually. I sin. You sin. We all sin. We all need to be honest before God and with each other continually. We struggle with sin so confess your sin continually, and as you do, then trust God's grace completely. Trust God's grace to cover over our sinfulness. Even when you look back, look back at 1 John 1.9. It's really interesting, isn't it? If we con confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Why does it say those two attributes of God? I kind of expect that verse to say, if we confess our sins, God is gracious and merciful. That feels like it'd be a little more comforting. Right? When I do something wrong, I don't think, I want to go before a judge who's faithful to the law. So why is it comforting that God is faithful and just? Oh, here's why. Christian, don't, don't miss this. This goes back to trusting God's grace completely. When you trust in Jesus, you can know that God's faithfulness guarantees your forgiveness. God's faithfulness means that when you confess your, confess your sins, God will always, always, always be faithful to forgive you. You can bank your life on that. If God were to refuse to forgive you, he would be unfaithful to you, and he is not unfaithful. He is faithful. So believe this, particularly when you are prone not to forgive yourself or not to believe that you're forgiven. When the adversary tries to accuse you and beat you down for sin in your past or besetting sin in your present, you hold fast to this reality. God is faithful. He loves you and he forgives you completely. And then if you keep going just a couple verses later in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, the Bible says if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Did you hear that? Jesus is your advocate. He's your advocate. Jesus is for you. He's for you. When you sin, no, Jesus is still for you. He's for you. He's for you. Just feel this. Jesus is for you. For all who trusted in him, he's for you. And specifically, he is the propitiation for your sins. You're like, what does that mean? It means, it's a word that describes how Jesus turns aside the judgment and the condemnation we deserve for our sin. In other words, all the price for your sin has already been paid. It's already been paid. So you don't need to live in a state of guilt and condemnation when God has said there's no more guilt. There is no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation for you. Why? Follow this. Because God's justice at the cross poured out on Jesus, his son, in love for you and me makes possible complete cleansing of your conscience. Complete cleansing. 
No other religion, religious leader in the world makes possible a clean conscience before a perfect, holy God. And this kind of conscience is yours by faith in Jesus. Not through your works, by faith, by trusting his love for you. Just trust in his love for you. I, I got in the car this morning to come up here with a couple of my kids and my music playlist coming through the car was on random and the first song that came on was not random. It's a song I haven't heard in a long time by a friend of mine named Aaron Keyes called You're Not Guilty Anymore. And I, I just sat there listening to these words and I thought, I've got to share these today. So if I could, I just wanna, I just wanna read these words over you. And for every single one of you who has trusted in Jesus, will you just hear and receive these words from God for you today? Just receive this right where you are right now. God's saying it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me tell you, I forgive. You are not guilty anymore. You are not filthy anymore. I love you and my mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. I love you and my mercy is yours. Can you believe that this is true? Grace abundant, I am giving you, cleansing deeper than you know. All was paid for long ago. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You are not guilty anymore. Just listen to these words. You are, God's saying to his people, all put your faith in Jesus. You are spotless. You are holy. You are faultless. You are whole. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are pardoned. You are mine. You are not guilty anymore. Jesus is your only hope for a clean conscience. And believe that in Jesus you have a clean conscience by which you can draw near to intimacy with God. Jesus is the only way to a clean conscience. And then final truth, Jesus is the only way to a good conscience. The only way to a conscience that makes possible intimacy with God and success in life and unity in the church and mission in the world. And Jesus is the only way to a good conscience that guides you to live and die for what matters most in this world. So here's how I wanna close. Over the course of this series in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, we wanna give you at least six questions to ask that I hope will practically help you as you make decisions on a daily basis, small things, and in big things, Lord willing, with a good, clean conscience. I'm gonna give you the first two questions today and then we'll pick up with them next week. So here's the first question we all need to ask if we want a good, clean conscience. We need to ask, number one, what does the Bible say about a particular decision or action, thought, desire? And wherever God has spoken clearly, we need to align our conscience with his word. But then, on issues where the Bible is not clear, on exactly what you need to do, then you need to ask a second question. And that question is, what does my conscience say? What do I sense as best as I can, based on God's word and God's spirit, that I should think or desire or do in this situation? Now the thing is, most people ignore this question, maybe even both these questions, or most people stop with this question and think, all right, I'm just gonna do what seems right to me. But I wanna show you over the coming weeks that there are at least four other questions we need to ask if we're actually going to live with a good, clear, clean conscience. So more on that 
next week. Let's pray. As we bow our heads all across this room and other locations, wherever you are online, I, I just, I want to give some of you right now, before God, an opportunity to have all of your guilt gone. To be restored to relationship with God right now for all of eternity. If you, if you, if you do not know what it means to have a clean conscience before God, have not put your faith in Jesus in this way, I invite you right now, your heads bowed, eyes closed, just to say to God in your heart, just to say to him right now, God, I know I've sinned against you. I know that because of my sin, I'm separated from you. But today I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead in victory over sin. So today I'm asking you, please forgive me of all my sin. Please wipe the slate clean in my heart. And please restore me to relationship with you. Today I trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of my life. You pray that to him. You place your faith in him in that way right now. The God of the universe wipes the slate clean of sin in your heart. By faith in Jesus, he restores you to relationship with him forever. Oh God, we praise you for this reality. Even how this reality is playing out in hearts right now. How you are forgiving people of sin and you are drawing people to yourself right now. All glory be to your name for this grace. So we pray, God, help us to live in this. Help us to live in this grace to every single day live grace-driven, not guilt-ridden lives. Help us to trust your love for us. And out of the overflow of your grace in our lives, God, we pray that you would calibrate our conscience according to your word and your spirit, according to what is good for our lives, others' lives, and your glory in the world. We pray that over the coming weeks you would teach us grow us, mature us individually and as a church to have good, clean consciences before you that are ultimately bringing great glory to you and ultimately leading us to live and to die for what matters most in this world. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.